Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. Huh, I still am messing with my hair. I, you can tell I haven't been here for like two weeks. This, is the thir- this will be three weeks since we last spoke. Whew. I don't know what you guys have been up to, but I have been very, very, very busy. And in fact, the reason I didn't do the the gathering room for a couple of weeks was that I have been sitting in this chair. Sorry, what? Oh, I was painting. Yeah, I have to admit that. I was sitting in a chair doing interviews for my new book that came out. And if you bought it, thank you so much. And I, I hope it's helping you and making your life better. And it turns out in the age of podcasts, a book tour um, involves taking many, many people into your bedroom with you. This is my bedroom. Welcome to my bedroom. And I've been in my bedroom with so many people over the last two weeks, all of them over Zoom or some other technology. And I've met a lot of wonderful people and done zillions of podcasts. And it's been wonderful, except that it got kind of exhausting. And then I did something that I have learned to do, you guys. I have learned to do this thing. And it will pull you back from the brink of exhaustion or mania. I mean, I got on the New York Times bestseller list. Thanks, you guys. And it was like I went into a manic phase. Ah! Then I was off the bestseller list. Because if if you don't know this one single skill I'm going to talk about in this gathering room, you are at the mercy of the ups and downs of life, guys. You're Sorry, people. Correct me whenever I say that. It is people this time. And it will be forevermore. So people, there's one skill that if you don't learn it, will put you on the the roller coaster of elation and despair that we have talked about in the past. So I was thinking about this. And the one thing I didn't want to call it was what it's called technically in the Buddhist books where I learned it. And that is non-attachment. So the single skill that will make all the good times of your life last longer and go deeper and make all the bad times of your life seem shorter and shallower is non-attachment. But we don't even have a word for it in English. We have the word attachment. We have the word detachment. Detach, if you're detached, you're like kind of like a psychopath going, oh yeah, people live, people die. I don't care what happens to my family, that kind of thing. It's, it's cold. Detachment is seen as cold in our culture. So when people like Buddhists say they're seeking non-attachment, we think, oh, I don't want me any of that. But let me show you how it works. You may have heard me talk in the past about spider love. Um, This is the way I define spider love. And a lot of people who come to me for coaching or who, you know, reach out on on these social media platforms are in a kind of relationship that is typified by this sort of love, spider love. Spiders love flies, yes? They love the way they crunch, the way, the way they taste. And in order to experience this love for themselves, a spider will wrap up a fly alive and inject venom into it and then suck out its life force. So how many of you have been in a relationship or two or nine where the other person was literally feeding on your energy and wanted you stuck in no other relationship but the one that you were in with them so that they could always have access to your life energy. So this can look like jealousy. I don't want anyone to love you but me. That's spider love. The spider wants to eat the fly so it doesn't want to share. Um, I don't want you to go anywhere without me. That's, we're going to tie you up so your life force can be drained. 
parents can love their children in this way and vice versa. Um, lovers very often in our culture treat it this way because our culture celebrates this kind of love. If I can't have you, I'm going to kill you. Er, er, er. That isn't love, folks. That is a predator-prey relationship. So, and, and again, because we can say, I, I love Cheerios or whatever it is, we mix up the love that is consumptive with the love that is genuine. And here is how you always know spider love from other love. And that is whether or not it sets you free. Because as you all know, the Buddha loved to say that no matter where you find it, enlightenment always tastes of freedom. And any relationship that is based on love is its central purpose is to set the other free and to see the other being free. That is the great joy of genuine love. Now, do you see how that means you pull back off and not attach as strongly to the other person or to the institution or whatever it is? When you reach non-attachment, it isn't that you cease to love, it's that your spider love goes away and all the love you experience is setting other people free. So that's why Maya Angelou said that the function of freedom is to free someone else. She could have said the function of love is to make someone else feel loved, but that's not, the language isn't correct in English. The real exact truth is the function of freedom is to free someone else. So. The way this looks in our everyday lives is that we learn this little mental trick whenever we get upset. So if we get anxious in particular, anxiety is always a signal that we're attached to something. Um, if you get irritable or grouchy, again, you may be feeling attached to something. And sometimes when you feel sad. Now all these feelings are valid and they're part of the grieving cycle. And if they're moving through you, they're nothing to worry about. I mean, they're, they can be painful, but you can feel, for example, when you're grieving a loss, you can feel that it's healthy and you have to go through it. And if you try to flatten it down and say, I'm not attached to that, I don't care. It's a kind of soul murder, right? That's not freedom. Saying I'm never gonna have any negative emotions is not freedom. Saying I am free to have all the emotions I really have and I will take care of myself and find people who take care of me in that process. That's freedom, that's love, and that's not attachment. People who can hold all your emotions and not be shaken by it are people who truly love you and they're people who are not attached. Have you ever had the, the experience of being in a, in a sad place and someone else was trying to force you to cheer up and you really got the feeling that the cheering up wasn't for you, it was for them. I know a, a woman whose boyfriend uh, got really, she, she was very codependent. She started going to a codependency 12-step group. And she learned at one of these groups, your job is not to take care of other people's feelings. She was like, what? So she went home and she told her boyfriend, guess what? I found out that taking care of your feelings is not my job. And he said, yes, it is. That is your only that's your only job is to take care of my feelings. And she was like, no, it really isn't. And I go crazy when I think it is. He took off. That was it. <laughs> Gone. So that was a very codependent relationship. But the point is that when somebody's trying to cheer you up or make you act happy, it's not always love. It's often attachment. Now, the opposite of being attached, when you're attached, you need your children to succeed, not 
for their joy, not for their gratification, but for your own. You need everyone to stay healthy, not because uh, you, you thrive in their well-being, but because without them, you would not be able to live. So you see, the focus is on what you need instead of setting them free. It's not even on setting yourself free. It's I'm going to get so attached to this thing that I can never lose it and I can control every move it makes and that way it can always serve my needs. Problem is, that type of consumptive spider love always leads to misery. Always, always, always. Doesn't matter whether you feel it for your grandmother or for your wedding ring. That kind of attachment is going to lead to some kind of suffering. Worrying about losing the thing, possibly losing it and having to deal with that. Not knowing where else to get your gratification. All these things add up to misery. Now, I think I've told you this story before about the, the guru who, li he lived in India and he collected these exotic crystals that were one of a kind. And one day he kept them on a big glass rack. And one day his housemaid, knocked over the rack and it shattered the shelves and it shattered many of the crystals. And he came in while she was cleaning and she was weeping hysterically saying, oh my God, these are irreplaceable. You know, what are you, what are you gonna do to me? And he just looked at her and he said, don't worry, those things were for my joy, not for my misery. So he collected these things and he loved them. He loved to look at them, he loved to play with them, but he wasn't attached to them. And the best example of non-attachment I have in my own life is my son, Adam. And he's so interesting. He talks like a Zen master, even though he almost never talks. And when he does, he uses really simple language. But like we said to him, it was his birthday last week. Um, we said, um, are you excited that it's your birthday coming up? And he was like, yeah, I'm excited. And he said, but really, I'm just happy all the time. So he didn't need it to be his birthday to be happy. He was glad it was his birthday, but he would be fine if it weren't his birthday. If something changes for him, if we say, you know what, the power went out, you don't get to play the game you were planning to play for the next three hours. He goes, hmm. And you see him think for a minute and then he goes, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. And everything that's happened to him, like almost dying of oxygen deprivation in the mountains, um, having dental surgery without anesthesia. He always is like, hmm, I'll be okay. And he always is during the dental surgery where he had this huge abscess and it was, an, his face was swollen up to the size of a tennis ball and his dentist was so appalled that he rushed him into this operating room on a Sunday and didn't have an assistant. And he had Adam run the suction for his own surgery while he drained the abscess. And he gave, he offered him pain meds and Adam said, no, I don't want that. And we were like, no, take it. I don't want to take it. So he kept saying as he's like cutting open the abscess, does it hurt because we can give you painkillers? And Adam would say, not yet, not yet. We'd say, how does it feel? Feels weird. And here's the interesting thing. If you're not attached to any kind of experience in the body and you're not attached to a past or a future, the sensation you're feeling in the moment becomes much more tolerable. And it's gone like this, because you're always in that one moment. So Adam is attached. What? How do we achieve non-attachment? By finding the part of us that is always going, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I'll be okay. There's a part of you that is at your very center. And when you go into a deep sleep every night, you find it. 
if you can't sleep, like I've spent many nights of my life not sleeping, it's because you can't find it. But eventually, suffering and weariness are our allies, and they cause us to relax. And when we relax, we can start looking at the world, and instead of saying, how do I need that? We can say, how could something else be just as good? So I've done all this, I've been doing this for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. I've been meditating, watching my own mind. And the first step to non-attachment is to watch your own emotions. The second step is to say, it's okay to have that emotion. Because you, you have it, right? Like right now, go inside and try to detect any of the three bad categories of emotion, mad, sad, or scared. So anger in any form, uh, sadness in any form, uh, fear in any form. Find it, locate it, breathe, watch it. And I think this is what Adam's doing in those times when he's readjusting. He stops, he watches, he sees the emotion go up and down, and then he's back in the part of himself watching, and that part is okay. And the way he vocalizes that is, I'll be okay. And the, the result is that he's always happy. So I've used this, you guys, in painful experiences and I've used it in delightful experiences. And I had occasion to use it during this book tour because I went to the high of heights and then I went to, well, not the low of lows. I'm extremely overprivileged and I know it, but um, I got really exhausted doing the zillions of podcasts and stuff, really physically exhausted. So that was really unpleasant physically. I got sick, which I never do because I was out of my integrity. I was doing more publicity than was good for myself and my body. And I got caught, I got attached for a while. I would be looking at my amazon.com rankings because if you've written a book, you can go on Amazon Author Central. You get a page on Author Central. It has all your books and it shows how they've been selling like hour by hour. You want a recipe for crazy? <laughs> Try going in and checking how your book's doing hour by hour, especially if it's doing well for a while and then, you know, and I thought to myself, after a couple of weeks of this, I was like, okay, I've been way too attached. How do I unattach from this? And what I did, I sat and I watched it. And then I went into the part of myself that knows it's okay. And then the strangest thing happened, you guys. I just started painting like it was, like I was, my life depended on it. I started, I got an idea for a painting. And I started to paint and I would wake up at three in the morning, five in the morning, and I would be like, I have to paint, I have to. And I would like be squatting on the floor of my bathroom painting in my pajamas when everyone else got up. And I started to get even more sleep deprived. But the joy of that painting was just, I was just full of that feeling of, creativity going through me and I'm you know I'm struggling with it it's a hard hard subject I'll show it to you when it's done I hope Ro did not show you anything I saw an image go by um but I want to show you show it to you when I'm done but um what happened is that when I turned away from measuring myself in the world a huge pocket of creativity that had been forced down came bursting out. I have not checked my book ranks once since then. I never think about it. Now, I'm still doing some podcasts and I'm doing things to, to keep the book selling. I want it to sell well. I'm happy that it's doing pretty well, but I'm not attached. It's free. My book is free to be what it wants. 
and I'm free to go squat on the bathroom floor and paint to the point where last Sunday at 4.30, Ro came in and said, I excused you from the gathering room today. And I looked up at her with paint all over my face and went, oh, it's Sunday. <laughs> happy Mother's Day. Um, happy Mother's Day to all of you moms out there. Uh, so that's what I have to say about non-attachment. You pull away, you see the part of you that's always okay, and then wait for the gift. And the gift always comes. And the gift is a, it could be a nap. It could be a walk outside. It could be watching a great show on TV. It could be romping with your puppy or your baby. It could be anything, but it will feel like freedom. And that's when you know you're headed toward your own awakening, step by step by step. So I'm glad to be back with you, my loves. And I, I set you all free to ask me questions and be happy. Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. Probably the most common question I get from people is, how do I find my purpose? Why don't I feel that I'm on purpose? Well, it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com slash purpose, and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. So let's see what we're getting in the row thing. All right. Ah, somebody in the other part of the world says, Morning, Martha. Could you please explain your definition of boundaries? If we are non-attached to, to outcome, then do we need them? Safety, of course, being an exception. No, safety is not an exception. There's always safety. So yeah, non-attachment means we are free to set boundaries because we do not care if setting boundaries maybe offends someone who wants to be closer to us than we want to be. So setting a boundary is very important for non-attachment. If you're attached to a relationship, you end up sort of guessing and pleasing and you, you don't say no when you want to because, oh my goodness, they might, it might hurt their feelings. That's a spider. You're a fly in a spider-fly relationship there. And you're also trying to subtly manipulate the other person. So you're attached to manipulating their behavior too. What happens when... Um, when you're completely free and you don't have any attachments is you feel loved, you're spending time with someone, now you're tired or you're tired of them <laughs> or um, you genuinely have something else to do and you say, I'm going now and, or sorry, but I'm, I mean, you may, it's a polite sorry, but you go, you know, sorry, we have to end this. Let's do it again sometime. And if they say, oh, but please, 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 you say, no, sorry, I can't and you just keep saying the truth, the truth, the truth, the truth, that's what happens in non-attachment. You speak the truth to other people in relationship and that way they always know where you stand. They never have to worry about guessing what you mean or whether you're pleased or angry. And that, that kind of clarity can only exist when we're not attached to the outcome. In the absence of attachment, integrity arises by itself and it will heal everything. Oh, someone said, bought the book, have so many questions though. Mm, thank you. Is there a Q&A for passionate readers? Well, this would be one. Um, that's a great idea, Demaris. We could probably set one up. Yeah, Rose nodding at me here, so that could happen. Oh, and ah, also I got a notification 
um, that I'm, I, I remember. Another thing I did is develop the curriculum for a six-week course that we're doing over the whole Northern Hemisphere summer, Southern Hemisphere winter, called Practical Wayfinding 2021. Only we did one, a mini one earlier, but we're going to do a bigger one. Oh yeah, it's called Mastering the Creativity Mindset. This is the problem. I was working on this curriculum and it set me free so hard that my painting mode came on because I was thinking of ways to enhance creativity and guess what, they work for me. <laughs> now I'm testing them on other people and they're working for them too. So we are gonna have us a time when we do that. So, uh, I, I, oh, some people are talking about the book. You guys are so sweet. Now, here's another question. How about the attachment to self-care when it becomes a should and a chore in your life instead of doing it out of love for yourself? Oh my God, Catherine, that is such a fabulous question because we get attached even to ideas about what self-care means. Like I've had people apologize to me because they didn't go take a hot bath. <laughs> Not as in, sorry, I smell like a rat, but you know, I know I should have taken care of myself, but I just wanted to go to bed and I just didn't take that hot bubble bath I promised I would. And you know, they feel like they've failed life coaching. And I'm like, dude, you're in integrity. You did exactly what you really, truly wanted. And even attachment to the way it looks to take care of yourself will take you into suffering. This is why the Buddhists are so obsessed with non-attachment. The moment you get attached to anything, even if it's a super good thing in, in some forms, once attachment is involved with it, it becomes an anchor that drags you down to misery. So yeah, if you feel like something's a chore, even if somebody else calls it self-care, it's not self-care, it's a chore. Tell yourself the truth, do what feels like self-care. And also, you know, I, I got attached once to the idea, I'd been diagnosed with a terrible disease, interstitial cystitis. Anyone out there have it? Eee. I got over it, which is not supposed to happen. But um, after I was diagnosed, I went and lay down in bed thinking, okay, I'll rest until my symptoms go away. And they'd given me a hotline to call when the symptoms got really bad. It was severely painful. And I just lay there and lay there for a couple of days. And then I called the hotline and I said, look, I'm lying down, it's not getting any better. And the nurse advisor said, well, what do you wanna do? And I said, I wanna go out and walk around, but I'm too sick. And she's like, listen, if you want to go walk around, then lying down can be stressful. If you want to lie down, then walking around can be stressful. It's based on how you feel. And I was like, so yeah, I, there are times when self-care will look like dancing and there are times when self-care will look like not dancing at all or having a hot bubble bath or not having a hot bubble bath. It's always up to what your internal compasses are telling you in that moment. Elizabeth Thompson says, how do you love in a way that sets the other person and yourself free when you have things to get done? Kids to raise, old houses fixes, and my beloved ADHD party would happily do the thing he's joyfully obsessed with without the kids eating or washing for years without a nudge. But I don't like to nudge and he doesn't like to be nudged. Yeah, uh, I've done this to a lot of people, like just sort of drifted off while they sort of took look after the nuts and bolts of my life. And I feel so apologetic about it. And I have ADHD. I don't know if I have HD, but I have severe ADD, right? So that's why I'm painting like literally at three in the morning. It's a, a fixation that 
only an ADD brain can do, they tell me. And I got to tell you, there's an upside. Anyway, yeah, my responsibility, I'm always sort of pulling myself out of those creative trances and saying, check on the kids, check on the dogs, check on the fish, whatever. And um, here's the interesting thing. I tried really hard to be a good citizen and, and do that so that my loved ones could rest. And I couldn't manage it. I was still always dropping balls until there was something I genuinely cared about or I was genuinely the last line of defense. Like when I was the only person left to take care of my kids, weirdly, my ADD allowed me to take care of them. When it's about copy editing a book or something, my usual, or looking up references for, for things I've said in a book, my usual sort of slapdash quick start activity gets very precise and very careful. So even someone with ADHD has the capacity to take care of things. The problem is you kind of have to let the rubber hit the road. And this is true. It's, it's kind of like working with an addict or anyone else. If you enable something, it makes it easier for the other person to get away with it. I have a lot of people enabling me, so I get away with it a lot. But there were, I can tell you right now that if I, if you were in my house and you were bleeding and there was nobody else, I would not be painting. I would be helping you. I, I have the capacity to pay attention. Um, I sometimes go to this 12-step group on codependency that meets at 7.30 in the morning and I've never spoken or shown my face. I just sit there on my phone with 400 other people. And I've heard some interesting stories. And one of them was this woman um, always thought she had to take care of her husband, always thought she had to clean up for him, do his laundry, do everything. Then she went to the hospital for two weeks. She had an emergency surgery. When she came back, he had not only clean, done the laundry, but he had organized his shirts by color and sleeve length. And she was like, what is, what happened? Like you've never done, you've never cleaned up clothing in your life. And he said, well, I never had to, but once I had to, I found things in it that I liked. So letting people kind of hit bottom, as they say in addiction circles, can be really, really helpful. And it's a form of non-attachment. You want to look at non-attachment, look at codependency theory. So Amy says, what are some practical tools of non-attachment? Thank you. So the first one is take a pause. In um, French baby rearing, they have something called le pause. Is that, did I say that right? It's basically pause. French is a lot easier than Chinese, you guys. Anyway, um, I don't even know what pause is in Chinese and I studied it forever. But the reason French babies, they say, are well-adjusted and go to sleep better than babies from some other cultures is that French mothers, it's in the culture for some reason that when the baby is crying, the first thing you do is nothing. You say, baby crying, okay, stop. What does this really sound like? Is the baby truly in agony? Is the baby just fussing? Is the baby still asleep? Babies cry in their sleep. Who knew? Um, does, is the baby just getting out extra energy? If you pay attention in a place of non-attachment where your emotions aren't all riled up and you're not caretaking, you can start to hear the quality of the cry. And then if the baby is in real distress, of course, you pick them up immediately. But if they're not, it really helps babies learn to settle down and go to sleep if they're not overly stimulated right at bedtime. So yeah, I did not know that with my first three. So sorry, guys. Oops. I keep calling people guys. This is what I'm trying not to do. I'm sorry, I'm cleaning up my language. People, 
Sorry, people. I did not raise you with la pause, but la pause is the first thing to do when you feel a sense of wanting to act out of sort of a knee-jerk attachment. Pause, breathe, say, is this really the most productive way? What do I really truly feel? Get back in touch with what I call your inner teacher in my book and do what's true for you. So Lisa says, how do we stay committed to being rigorously honest with ourselves? Well, one way you can stay committed is to notice that every time you're not honest with yourself, it leads to suffering. That is the only reason that I stay honest with myself, but I stay really, really honest with myself because I don't like suffering. No, thank you. So, you know, make a commitment. I love making a commitment to just like, I'm going to be especially close to my integrity. I'm not even, I'm not going to do one single activity that doesn't align with my true feelings this week. You can start by taking the no lie challenge. This is also in my book, The Way of Integrity. Um, I take it for years on end. Take it for a day, a week. People who just, who just say they won't lie as much for, I don't know, three weeks in one study, had fewer doctor visits, fewer sicknesses, better relationships, better performance at work, just by saying, okay, I won't lie as much for a few weeks. So just try making that commitment and see it, see it work. Okay, so how can we practice being kind to ourselves? Right after this call, go sit by yourself and say, self, what would be delicious? And then absolutely follow through as, as best you can to give your true self whatever it suggests. Rebecca says, oh, 100 pages into the book and I'm, I'm stuck. I have a lot of gates I need to face and walk through. I'm overwhelmed by how many there are. How do I move through them all? Is there a shortcut? Well, the gates, you guys, are places where we're in denial and we don't want to look at what we already know is there. Sweetheart, you may, you may notice that right around there, I say, go slowly. Don't deal with anything overwhelming. Find something tiny. Find something just a little bit bothersome. I don't really love the brand of toothpaste I'm using or, um, you know, I just, I really should go and get my shoes corrected or something <laughs> like take something little and go through the whole exercise that's really part of what i built into the book is that you go tiny step by tiny step and it doesn't matter how many you have just take one tiny step forward and you will get to all the way to enlightenment if you just keep going a couple more questions even though we're at the half hour um the Chick Life says, in Finding Your Own North Star, you said to release past trauma by sharing it with a therapist or trusted person. What if you've done that, but it still feels stuck? What should one do? Go to a better therapist or a different friend. Um, trauma is something that really needs to be done in the company of someone skillful and compassionate. And if you've talked to, I've, I had this experience going and talking to a therapist and thinking, I feel worse, not better. And she said, that shows that it's working. And I felt that's not true. Still went back a few times. It was an absolute disaster. Switch therapists had a wonderful healing, beautiful experience. So don't give up. Keep going, you guys. You people. All right. Christina says, do you ever get tired of being in a human body? I hope you understand my question. Christina, every single day of my life, I have thought, really? Still this? I get really tired of being in a human body and I've never really attached to it. Or maybe when I had early trauma, it detached me a little and I've just always been aware that I'm sort of in it and not it. So what I've realized, there are a couple of things. We're still in these bodies because 
The spirit wants to have a physical experience. It loves the experience of being in these bodies and it's not afraid to suffer. The body is, the, but the soul really isn't. It wants to be in this body for this time doing these things for reasons that we understand more and more as we get deeper into our own sense of truth. So I think we all get tired and I hope that you all out there are being very kind to yourselves and setting yourselves free today. And I'm so happy to be talking to you again. Oh, and here is, somebody just handed me this. This is the course that we're doing this summer. Woo! No. Oh, I, it is? It is the course we're doing this summer. That's why I said. Okay, yeah, that's what we're doing this summer. Oh, I was not supposed to show you. I was supposed to read it to you. Okay, it'll be... <laughs> Yeah, okay, I'm gonna go take care of myself now and be unattached to the results of my actions. And I love you very much. And I will see you on um, Sunday again here in the gathering room. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Thanks for being here, you guys. People. <laughs> for almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, a few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025, but I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash compass, and we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star. It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us. 